yeah, I you know love the idea of running, but I'm a sprinter. And that's when he said, you know, there's a master's track and field circuit. It's like, oh, what? This one's radio episode 1002 starts in three, two. Welcome back to Diz Runs Radio, where I talk with runners from all corners of the running world about running, life, and everything in between. I'm your host, Denny Cray, and it's just about time to head out the door for an easy run and a great conversation. So if you're ready, then I'm ready. Let's get started. Real quick, before we dive into today's episode of the show, today's episode is brought to you by me, I guess, because the, the coaching side of things is the sponsor for today. If you're looking to uh, maybe maybe saddle up with a coach, get uh, get all the other nonsense off your plate so you can just worry about the running. No more worrying about which workouts to do, how far you should go, should I rest today or not, or you know all of those all of those things that, quite frankly, I mean, any of us can figure out, but sometimes you just don't want to deal with that crap. You just want to show up and run. That's where having a coach could really be a game changer for you. And we've got uh, we've got some options available. Uh, I'm not talking about any of them specifically today, but you probably heard me talk about the coterie. You've heard me talk about one to one. You've heard me talk about concierge coaching, the new level. Um, all three are explained a little bit in in you know minor detail at disruns.com/coaching, and then from there you can you can click over to each individual page, find out more of the specifics of what's available at each level. But uh, if you're thinking that, that 2022 might be a, a good year to start working with a coach, get all the other nonsense off your plate, just focus on the running and uh, making progress towards your goals, let's talk. We've got some openings available. Happy to, uh, to, to see if it might be a good fit and uh, want to go forward into the new year together. So check it out, disruns.com slash coaching. Start there. Ask whatever questions you have. And uh, if you're ready to get going, let's saddle up and uh, start the party, shall we? Anyway, without any further ado, let's go ahead and dive in. To today's episode of the show. Hey y'all, uh, my guest today is someone that uh, has been working to help revol- revolutionize the running shoe industry over the past decade or so, and uh, definitely built a very successful company around that ambition. Uh, from, from what I can gather, and, and you can correct me if my numbers are somewhat wrong, although I don't know, hopefully they're, they're close to accurate. Uh, about a decade ago, like I said, started with about $40 in a dream, and today we're over $12 million in annual sales, continuing oh, to grow yeah. globally. Uh, double that. Du- well, double that plus. I double mean, that so last plus. Year- Publicly, we because we have to, we can only state things publicly. Last year we did twenty three point three, and let's just say this year is much better. So so yeah, so my numbers that I found were not accurate, but uh, oh, things oh are news. doing well. Things are doing well. Um, okay. He's also a, a runner himself, and uh, needless to say, between the business stuff, running stuff, who knows what other stuff, uh, plenty of things to talk about today. So let's get this party started and welcome Mr. Stephen Sashin to the show. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Stephen. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Looking forward to having some fun. Yeah, absolutely. And guys, if you want to check out. Um, Steven's company, uh, the, the, shoe, the, the shoes that we'll be getting into eventually, it's, it's zeroshoes.com, X-E-R-O shoes.com on all things social, whatever your uh, social media handle of choice or platform of choice might be, just look for zero shoes at zero shoes. You're going to find them. You're going to find the stuff that they've got going on, new things coming, all kinds of good stuff on social media at zero shoes. And the show notes for today, as always, you got, you know, we got all the links, all the, all the things that we talk about today will be there. Dizruns.com slash one zero zero two Dizruns.com slash 1002 for today's show notes. So Stephen, the way we always start off each episode of the show is with a relatively simple question, sometimes easy one to answer, sometimes a little bit more difficult. Um, I feel like I have an idea where you're going to go with it, but I've been surprised before. So we'll just throw it out there and see where that takes us. And that's to simply ask, what is your favorite distance to race and why? What's your guess? Um, I feel like I saw 100 meters, which is not a common answer to the question around here, but yeah, no, uh, it's not true. Uh, my favorite uh, is the 60 meters. 60 meters, <laughs> even shorter. <laughs> Indoor. Well, for two reasons. One, uh, at the end of a 60, I mean, you've just gotten to full speed, and so that's super fun. Because at 100, I know this sounds crazy because people, for people who aren't sprinters, but especially for an old guy like me, I'm 59 and a half, that last 20, 30 meters, you know, and it's always true for the 100. It's, you're not accelerating constantly. You're not maintaining constant max velocity. You start slowing down, and the goal is to slow down slower than the guy next to you. Well, so the last 30 meters of 100, 
it's it's annoying. In a 60, you don't have to deal with that. You just hit full speed and then you're done. And even more fun, since it's an indoor race, they'll usually have a big crash pad on the wall and then just go flying into the crash pad is super exciting. So it's just, it's like a, um, it's like a drag race and drag racing is fun. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I used to, uh, when I was in grad school, I, I worked with the uh, track and cross country team at Middle Tennessee State University and we had an indoor track. So we, we were a regular a hoster of indoor track meets and yeah i used to sit like the where the where the you know because space is an issue like you said the crash pads were all set up and ours were set up like in front of like a an ice chest or like a big like industrial ice chest at the, at the, oh, okay. at the top of the track type of situation and uh with big pads in front of it but i used to crawl up on top of the ice chest and like sit right at the you know 15 10 meters from the finish line they people just come and screaming right at you slamming into the thing just yeah like oh man what it was it was like it's like being part of a relatively safe uh, innocuous car crash multiple times every track yeah. meet. Well, you know, and I've got to add, so I'm a former All-American gymnast, so I do this other thing, which is just as I'm about to hit the pad, I jump and then I do a half turn, so I hit the pad <laughs> on my back. So it looks super exciting because like, whoa! Um, so there's an added little ESPN moment in there. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so obviously, you know, being, being more of a, of a sprinter, having that, that, that love for the short distance stuff, is that something that's been around for like, is that a high school thing kind of, you know, early, early days? So how'd you get started in, in the sport of running? Uh, that's the way it's been since I was five. Mm-hmm. So sprinters are born is the gist <laughs> of it. There's a guy named Ralph Mann, who was a um, silver medalist in Munich in the 400 meter hurdles, who wrote a great book about sprinting mechanics. And he says, there's eight things that make up a sprinter. Seven of them are genetic. And the eighth is how you maximize your genetics. Mm. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what, uh, what, you know, don't leave us hanging. What are some of the genetic factors that determine a sprinter if, if you got them off the top uh, of your head? A whole bunch of things that I don't have. Gotcha. So I mean, the biggest <laughs> thing is typically just, uh, um, you know, fast twitch muscle or mm-hmm. leaning towards more fast twitch, right. fast twitch muscle fibers. That shouldn't be hard to say, but boy, that was really hard to say. And then there's some neurological things as well. Um, ideally, you know, you want to be way taller than I am. I'm five, five on a good day. Um, five, 10 to six feet is sort of ideal. Um, there's some biomechanical things just about femur length and whatnot. Um, so I, again, I look more like a gymnast or a soccer player than a sprinter, which is kind of fun because, oh, and, and I'm also white. Uh, and I only say that because there's only been one white guy who's run a sub 10 second hundred meter, uh, Christophe Lemaitre. And, um, and there's debates about whether he had any help doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no explanation for why I'm not trying to get into a racial whatever. Suffice it to say, when I show up at the line, at a decent track meet, I'm one of, if not the only white guy at a line. And so, you know, here's this short white guy next to a whole bunch of big buff black dudes. And my goal used to be to win the race, but now my goal is just to have people go, what's he doing here? Right. And then you know, I beat most of those guys and they go, what the hell just happened? And so that's super fun. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Speaking about, you know, kind of showing up at, at, at a line at a track meet, you know, something that you're, you're still doing is if, yeah. if, again, if my facts are correct, um, which Questioning my questioning myself now because my earlier facts were were old, not so not so correct. <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give you a pass on that one. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, but uh, you know, I, I've talked to a, a, several folks over the years. Um, you know, that, that got into to running in in high school, running track, doing you know yeah. like like doing that type of thing. And then over the years, they've they've graduated to road races, and you know whether it's five k's or halves or mar- marathons or tra- whatever you know longer distance stuff. Uh, but have there been a few that is like that 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 remind me because I always not always easy to forget that sprinting is still a thing that, that you can find <laughs> masters events. You can find <laughs> sprinting events, um, to, to still participate in no matter, you know, no matter how old you are, no matter where you're at. I mean, you can, you can find those events and, and run them. Um, yeah. you know, so I guess maybe just the, 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 the obvious question or the first question, we'll kind of take it from there is, you know, for, for those that are, that are unaware that, you know, adults, people outside of high school and college that are running really competitively can still do, you know, sprinting events. Like where, where do people find, like, where are, like, are they everywhere? Are they very sporadic to find? Like for those that might be interested, let's talk about it. Oh no, they're, they're, they're everywhere. And by everywhere, I mean around the entire planet. And so look, I was one of those guys who had no idea either. In fact, it took me till I was, I don't know, probably in my thirties till I realized I'm a sprinter, not a runner. I had tried doing, you know, any sort of distance and just never liked it at all. I was just not built for it. Especially once I moved to Colorado where the air is so thin. Um, like when I first moved here from sea level, I thought my bike was broken cause it just wouldn't move. And so running same idea. Um, but I then, you know, realized one day, I don't know why it took me my whole life to go, Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, 
I do short fast things. That's my thing. And when I was 45, which is 14 and change years ago, a friend of mine came in for brunch and he had just won a 5K and he was a big deal 5K runner. It was the first time he had won and he was ecstatic. And I said, yeah, I you know love the idea of running, but I'm a sprinter. And that's when he said, you know, there's a master's track and field circuit. It's like, oh, blah, 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 what? So I had no idea. And all you have to do is go to usatf.org or masterstrack.org. And those are, those are both good starts for where you can find out who's doing what. Uh, not surprisingly, there's more meets in places where it's warm year round. So Southern California, Florida, Texas, et cetera. And that's where you can find a lot of the guys who are still crazily competitive. Um, but if you hunt around, there's an indoor season and an outdoor season. I do run the 100 outdoor. I don't even run the two because I hear there's um, there's a turn involved and I, <laughs> I, I don't have a GPS watch, so I can't do that. So um, uh, I'm not a good 200 meter runner. And, um, uh, and yeah, there's meets everywhere. And the, the really fun part is if you have the wherewithal, there's the whole international circuit. So 13 years ago, my wife and I went to Finland and to run in, so I could run in the Masters World Championships. And that was a blast. And what was even more fun actually was we went from there to Germany, to Berlin, where my wife had friends and her, the husband of her friend uh, was the head of Berlin tourism. And we got there the day that they had the world championships like the legit world championships and that was the finals for the 100 meters happening and he says do you want to go to the track it's like uh yeah and so we had vip passes obviously we're seven rows off the track at the 70 meter mark watching usain bolt go by at 29 miles an hour which by the way when you see someone running fast enough to get a speeding ticket in my neighborhood uh, going across your field of vision here's what your brain does what <laughs> it just doesn't look real it's it was amazing yeah, I can I can only imagine. I mean, it's it's amazing watching him on the TV. You know, when he not even close. And I I, track, I was imagine track, yeah. Yeah, track on the TV is so boring compared to live. And of course, a track meet is like attention deficit disorder theater because there's so many things going on at one time, and you hear people like going ah, and you have no idea what they were just looking at. Um, but watching people run that fast in real time. It's just a whole different world. There's a, a guy who was second to Bolt in the 200 a number of times um, named Gil Roberts. And I got to train with Gil a couple times. And his ground contact time was so fast and so explosive. It looked like every time he touched the ground, he stepped on an IED. I mean, it's just like it didn't even look like his feet hit the ground. And uh, that was uh, just incredible to watch as well. So seeing I went to the Atlanta Olympics. Same thing. Just watching everything live completely different than anything you, you experience on television. You, you, people have to go to track meets. Yeah. Track meets are, are again, with my, with my middle Tennessee days, like two years of, of working as the, as the athletic trainer with the track team and going to every, every meet. And like you said, always something going on. Uh, but everything always seems to stop when it's time for the hundred meter dash. Like, like <laughs> that's true. Even at a, even at a college meet, like everything stops for the for the, the, like, the sprint. Yep. It's super super quiet. But here's the funny part about that. So like the kids in their twenties, you know, late twenties, who are still running, like you know, low ten, uh, they get a lot of attention. And then the guys who are older than me, like the eighty plus, you know, they get a lot of attention. And I'm in that age group where no one gives a crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, just just give it another, you know, twenty thirty years, and then and then people will start caring about you again. That's my goal is just to outlive everybody else. Yep. That's, that's my goal for qualifying for Boston is to just get a little bit faster and keep getting older until I finally get into the age group yeah. where, where, you know, a 345 yeah. is, is acceptable. Hey, look, at 5'5", five, five, I turn 60 next year. The hurdles drop to, to a height that I can actually clear. There you go. There you go. You got a whole new event, a whole new set of PRs that you can be uh, chasing wait. now. Absolutely. No, the best, this is the best thing about Masters Track is every five years you're in a new age group, and instead of you know feeling the the dread of getting older, it's like oh I'm gonna crush people now. I've got mm -hmm. a good year where I've got an edge. Yeah, yeah, and then and then you you keep getting older, and the the new people are younger, and then you know you, then the cycle repeats like you said every five years. And you know talking about Masters Track, I, I don't remember all the details, but I know just recently, woman set the new new record for um, 105 age group, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah, you know, when we were in Finland, there was a 101-year-old guy who did some field events, and he'd kind of he'd come out on his walker, and he'd put the walker down. They'd hand him the implement, like you know, the shot put, and I think the shot was like five pounds for that age. And then he just and it goes about ten feet, and the crowd goes insane because everybody just wants to be that guy someday. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's absolutely my goal is to just keep keep running until uh, you know put me in the ground, like just run right up to it and, and shut it down. I was in a documentary and uh, I got asked a question that was the most, the weirdest question I, I was ever asked. And I'll, I'll ask it to you and see what you do. Um, so what are you going to do if, when you can't run anymore? I mean, 
hopefully we don't it, we, we have a long time until we get to that point but that, that'll be a bridge that i'll cross when i get there like 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 what is the reason i can't run anymore because i gotta find something to do i can't just sit around I so yeah I, I mean i just was stumped by the question i literally sat there speechless trying to imagine that situation and i i literally went i i literally can't fathom what you're talking about yeah. i mean unless i can't get up and move at all right. um i will do the closest thing to approximating running till i can't right. i mean till i you know literally fall down yeah, no, I, I'm, it's, that's absolutely kind of my, you know, if, if, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, I can't really wrap my, clearly I stammering yeah. like a, like an idiot. I, I can't fit like, no, I was doing the same thing. Know. It's such a, it's such a weird thing. And, and amazingly, you know, running is one of those things. I mean, you watch, I wish I could remember her name. Um, the woman who just did the, uh, the hundred at 105. And I mean, she, it took, I don't know, 45 seconds, maybe more. I don't, I don't even know the time who cares, right. but, um, all you do, you look at that and go, I just want to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and you can, I mean, you can't do, you know, you can't play box lacrosse when you're 105, you're not going to play football or, but you know, you can just do the best you can to keep moving. And that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's certainly one of those beautiful things about our sport is that, that as long as you're willing to accept that there might be some, you know, like your paces are going to maybe change as you keep getting older and you know, there's, there's limitations, but if you're willing to, to not try to compare yourself to 50 years ago, me, um, which is, which is hard. I mean, admittedly, it's tricky. I'm at the age now where, um, so for sprinting, if you look, there's an, there's an age graded table for like all American times. Mm-hmm. Um, and every five years there's new time, of course. And you look at the, the 60 or the hundred and the times drop off a cliff once you get over 60 years old. Mm-hmm. So the all American, uh, qualifying times. And I was, in fact, I was at the senior games, my first time there for 50 plus, and I'm talking to the 60 year olds and they said, yeah, once you turn 60, it starts to, you know, really go over the edge. And there was a bunch of 80 year old guys standing next to them. And they went, yeah, you have no idea what you're talking about. So you, you definitely, that is definitely one of the challenges is living your own race, if you will. It's like not, certainly not comparing yourself to what you could do last year. And not even necessarily comparing yourself to what you're going to be, you know, do with the guys standing next to you. Because when I was in Finland, this is another thing I did. I talked to anyone who was over 85, and I said, uh, nature or nurture? And mm-hmm. every one of them had the same answer. They said, totally genetics that I'm here, totally training that I'm beating the guy standing next to me. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that maybe there's some genetics in beating the guy standing next to you, too. And also, you know, the any given Sunday phenomenon. <clears throat> but suffice it to say, uh, that's a really tricky thing as you start getting slower to just be okay with that. I mean, for me personally, that's an, that's redundant for me. Um, I just use those all American times as my goal. If I can keep hitting all American times, I'm okay with that. There's, I've got a good friend who's four years older than me and he's one of the fastest guys in the world and total genetic freak. Uh, this is a guy who, when he got back into sprinting at 39, his third time racing, not even in a race, I think maybe his third time even on the track in a number of years, he set an American record. I mean, the guy's a complete freak. And um, I say that with nothing but admiration and the hope that we both end up at the Worlds next year and he drags me along for a 4 by 100 <laughs> relay. So um, so that's my other goal is just to stay healthier than the other guys. So at the end of the week uh, in a national or world championship, there's three other guys who are willing to put me in a, in a, in a relay. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a neighbor, um, snowbird neighbor, and they just recently got back into town. Um, but I think he's 90, 91 now. And he, he ran a, uh, I can remember a handful of years ago, he said, well, you know, I'm done running marathons. It's just, it's just too much now. Uh, stick to the half marathon. And, uh, then, then this year, I think it was it, like, he has a, a race, a 10 mile race that he runs every fall before they head South. And he was like, yeah, I think this this year was the last ten miler. I think next year I'm gonna I'm gonna drop down to the eight mile. Like it's just it's just a, a little bit. He still runs a lot, but just like the race yeah. situation, it's just it's just he's like, you know, at ninety, it's just a bit much. I said, yeah, Bob, just wait till next. Like you'll get up there next summer, you'll be feeling good. You know, you're gonna run that ten miler again yeah. next year. He, he kind of looked at me, and his wife was like, don't even start, don't even put that in his head. And I said, hey, come on, like you know, that's exactly what's you gonna know, happen. But this is this is another thing that I love about Masters Track is that we're all really competitive for no good reason. There's no money involved. There's no sponsorship deals. Um, we're all old enough to know that we're being competitive for no good reason. So it's like having a secret handshake. It's like, Hey, you're a moron too. Welcome to the club. <laughs> and I've literally never met any, anyone on the track that I don't adore. Cause you know, we all have that weird mentality where we're 
busting our asses for no good reason other than the fun of the effort of it and the intermittent reinforcement because I don't know what it's like in distance races but with sprints in particular where you've got there's only there's a very finite number of things you need to do and they're all very challenging to do perfectly and you'll never do them all perfectly in one race so that intermittent reinforcement it's like at the end of a race, when someone says to me, how'd you do? I go, do you just want a number or can I give you the excuse as well? <laughs> and, and so, and that's really compelling because it's like, oh man, I dragged my toe a little much on that start. If I could only, and that really, really gets you going. And it, it shouldn't. I mean, it's crazy how much that just gets into your brain and spurs you on to do the next thing. Yeah. And it's totally uh, applicable to distance stuff too. Cause I can't tell you how many times it, I've done it or I've had conversations with folks where it's, you know, you run a, you run a PR, you crush your goal. Like, like it was a great day, but then you're like, well, damn, I, st- I, I choked on the water stop at mile seven. And, and like, that cost me a few seconds or, you know, like yeah. whatever, all these little, little, I had to, I had to stop cause I got a, a pebble in my shoe and you know, that, that cost me a, a little bit of time here, but, but you still PR'd by two minutes, but like yeah, it could have been two, know, two minutes and two seconds. And, oh, you know, you like whatever. So funny about that. I, I have an interesting theory about something related to that. You know, we see these videos of someone in an 800 or a 1500 or whatever the hell the race is and someone gets tripped or they fall or whatever it is and then they get back and they win the race and everyone's like it's a miracle it's like i don't don't think so i think they got a little bit of rest um because like for me as a sprinter if i'm on a bicycle uh i can only ride so far and then i just need to hopefully hit a stoplight and get 30 seconds and then i'm fine again Mm -hmm. but i if i'm if i have to keep going I, i don't have it in me and so i i'm I really wonder about this. I don't know if anyone's ever tried training that way. If, if you're running a, let's say you're running a 1500, like stop at the 600 mark for 10 seconds and then start again and see what happens. That'd be a riot if we just tur- turns out that that's the better way to run that race. That, that would be, yeah, that would be an interesting, you know, kind of like which, who would be the first penguin off the cliff type of situation that would be willing to try that. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, but, what you'd have to do, you'd have to fake getting tripped because if right. you literally just stop, yeah, you, people yeah, would go, yeah, you whoa, you, no, you can't do that. Yeah. And, and you know, I, you know, kind of, who knows, you know, how that works out, but it's, we've all seen those videos, but it's, I think at that point, it's just kind of like the adrenaline spikes and you're just like, there's no more strategy anymore. There's no more pace in your, like, you got to go like hell to catch up to the pack and, you know, see whatever happens. And that that raises another interesting point. If it really is just an adrenaline function, then why can't we tap into that Mm -hmm. in, in some other way? I mean, look, even competition on its own is a whole different thing than training. Um, this is a thing I talk about all the time. It's like, especially sprinters, no sprinter has ever set a personal best in training. It's always in a meet because the the pressure is on that gets your juices going. There's a guy next to you. I mean, there's all those little factors that you can't, you can't fake it. You can't reproduce it. But when we see those, I mean, there's, it's so interesting. Like what's going on? Is it literally a biochemical thing that's making you run faster? Are you just ignoring signals that your brain is using to tell you to slow down? I mean, you know, that, I don't know if anyone's really looked into that, but that would be fascinating. Yeah, it would be. And I, I would imagine that there's got to be, you know, like anything in life or like most things in life, at least it's not a, it's not a single cause factor. It's, it's an amalgamation of all the different environment yeah. and tapers and train, like all of the things, but yeah, it's, it's, right. it's crazy how that, that environment tends to bring out the best when you just stop thinking and you just go. And well, and, and clearly it's not like it's a real strategy because not everyone who trips in a race ends right. up coming back and winning. Right. But, but, there's a, but I just wonder how many people have looked into that at all or even getting anecdotal reports about what people experience during that, which is very tricky because, I mean, I know a lot of world champion and Olympic champion runners. And when they talk about their experience, um, most of them, when they're describing what's going on, it's so full of mythology. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, one friend of mine who's a former world champion, someone asked uh, them about getting in the zone. And there was like a 20-minute diatribe about, you know, running when you're in the zone. I said, um, do you ever win a race when you weren't in the zone? And they said, yeah. I said, do you ever lose a race when you felt like you were in the zone? It's like, yeah. I go, well, there goes that zone crap. <laughs> so it's like sports psychology. Ever set a PR when you felt like crap? Yeah. Ever, you know, feel like, feel great and not be able to pull it off? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, then you don't, we need to worry about what you're thinking. Right. So right. I, this is a thing, uh, this is going to sound weirdly tangential, but I did stand up comedy for a living. And the key to becoming a successful professional comic is that when you can get on stage and do the job, regardless of what you were thinking and feeling a second before, Wow. And and every comic that I know, every performer that I know has stories about having like a 103 degree fever and lying in the back of the room shivering and they call your name and you get up on stage and kill it right. you know, you, partly because you can't think because you just mm-hmm. don't have the ability to second guess. You've just got to do it. And then you realize, oh, I can just do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's. Uh something I've talked about several times, not that specifically, obviously, but just like the role that the mind plays. And sometimes I feel like, um, 
oftentimes I feel like my mind gets me in more trouble than it, than it solves on race day and in training sometimes like that's, that's kind of my weak link. I wonder because as humans, we're wired to look for things like that. We're wired to look for, you know, causes of problems. That's what kept us alive when we we're in the savannah and we had to figure out if that weirdly moving blade of grass is lunch or if we're lunch for it. Um, so, you know, we're wired to look for problems and assume that, that, that if we could solve those, that's, that's the answer. But I'm, I'm iffy about that because, I mean, I know people who, who are plagued by self-doubt, but they still perform well. And I know, like, I'll go back to my gymnast days. It didn't matter what I was thinking or what anybody else who I was competing with was thinking. I happened to be the best guy around at that time. Mm-hmm. So they just weren't going to beat me. It just didn't matter. It was, it was more technical than anything else. And there was times where my brain was way out of whack. It just didn't make a difference. Um, and, and this is the same thing I said to the runner I was mentioning earlier. I said, you know, um, it doesn't matter if you were in the zone or not. You happen to be the greatest marathoner in the world at that time. And that was the important part. For whatever reason, that was, you know, how the stars lined up. Right, right. Talking about uh, here's here's a here's a transition for you. Talking about stars lining up. Let's let's talk about the the stars that lined up to get uh, you know the shift in professional life to to starting a shoe company. So, uh, like we said in the in the intro or, or mentioned there with the social medias and whatnot, Zero Shoes is is the website zeroshoes.com. Um, what, what was what was the impetus to to you know leaving whatever it was you were doing professionally, comic you know stand up comedy or otherwise to go hey let's let's pivot to starting a shoe company? Oh, yeah. I was happily retired, actually. Uh, my, my wife and I had done some clever investing around two, in the early 2000s, and we were kind of done. Um, but then, actually, it's not totally true because a lot of what we had, were doing was based on real estate, and we predicted the real estate market crashing in 2006. It happened in 2008, of course. Um, and so by 2009, we were trying to figure out what to do because our retirement plans had changed as a result. And, uh, but what really was the impetus was my getting back into sprinting and pretty much getting injured continuously for the next two years. And some of that was because my brain didn't know that my body wasn't 21 anymore. And some of that was, I don't know why, but one of these world champion runners that I know, and by the way, in Boulder, Colorado saying world champion runner is like saying my neighbor. Right. I mean, they, they're literally everywhere. One friend of mine, actually Lorraine Muller, who is a, um, uh, world champion and, and Olympic champion marathoner, actually, maybe she only got the bronze in the Olympics, but suffice it to say, still good. Yeah. We'll, we'll give her the pass. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like one Boston, one New York. Lorraine shows up at a turkey trot once um, and they put her in the front of the line just to, for a photo op. And she's there. She says, because I needed a turkey. And she right before the start, she looks to her left and her right. And there's like five other Olympians who were all there because they needed the turkey. So, <laughs> um, so it's a crazy thing. But uh, one of these um, one of these world champion runners said to me, why don't you try running without these big, thick, padded motion control shoes, things that, you know, elevated heel, uh, arch support, et cetera, et cetera. And just see if you learn anything. And so I kick off my normal shoes and I run barefoot and the experience was so engaging. So I was so transfixed by it. I was running on grass and on gravel and on roads and on trails and on wooden bridges. And I was experimenting with my gait. Like what happens if I run faster, run slower, have a higher cadence or lower cadence without changing my speed, land on different parts of my foot, um, use my muscles differently. What if I push off the ground or lift my foot off the ground? I mean, I just like, I was really into experimenting. And at the end of this run, I was with a bunch of people and somebody had a GPS watch on and I said, how, how far was that? Uh, and she said, uh, it was a little over 5k. It's like, sorry, what? And I could have kept going, but the whole group decided to stop. I was just so into it. Now at the end of this race, race at the end of this run, I had a big blister on the ball of my left foot. Mm-hmm. Now I've learned that most people, when something like that happens, go, ah, see this is bullshit. I got a blister on the ball of my left foot. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand went, how come my right foot's fine? Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, my left leg is the one that gets injured more often. Huh. I wonder if there's a connection. So next week, um, I got a gaping hole in the ball of my left foot and I figure we'll go for this, another barefoot run. If I can find a way to run that isn't hurting that gaping wound, I'm probably not doing the thing that caused it to begin with. Mm. So let's give it 10 minutes, see what happens. If it doesn't work, I'll try again later after this all heals. Nine minutes and 30 seconds of sheer agony later, uh, it changed in one step. And I'll tell you what happened, but specifically, but what I felt was suddenly instantly the pain wasn't happening. I, my breathing relaxed, everything felt, everything felt easier and I was running faster. Mm. And what was happening, I didn't realize was that I had previously been overstriding 
and pointing my toes because sprinters, you know, land on their toes, but I was still overstriding. So I'm putting on the brakes. Mm. So I'm applying excessive horizontal force. I'm applying friction. That's what caused that blister. And it's just worse on my left leg than my right. Now, of course, the value of running barefoot, I'm not going to suggest people take off their shoes and run barefoot. Although I will tell you every accomplished runner that I know does a bunch of barefoot training for this exact reason. And the reason is that when you're running barefoot, bad form hurts. Good mm. form feels great. Right. Bottom line. That's the reason to do it. And it's not the same doing it on grass as it is doing it on a good, smooth, hard surface where you get much more feedback. And when people say, we didn't evolve to run on hard surfaces, I go, first of all, go to where we evolved. Yeah, we did. Hard packed mud is like concrete. Mm -hmm. And secondly, we didn't evolve to do double twisting, double backflips either, but I can do those. So just because we didn't, quote, evolve on some place or in some place for something that doesn't mean we're not adapted to handle other situations. So suffice it to say, this natural movement experience, this barefoot experience was awesome. And I wanted more of it because it was clearly beneficial. And I wanted to not have to argue about whether it was legal to get into a restaurant barefoot. It is. Um, or, you know, come in with my feet all dirty, uh, which not a good idea. So I made a pair of sandals based on this 10,000 year old design, which people forget. 99.5% of human history, footwear was all fundamentally the same. Some thin, flexible, lightweight, something to protect your foot, mm -hmm. something to hold that on your foot, and maybe some insulation if you need it. That's it. The modern athletic shoe is the intervention. What we're doing here is just going back in time to what humans did successfully for most of human history. So made these sandals, um, made a pair for my wife, made a pair for some other barefoot runners. They told two friends, they told two friends. And next thing you know, I'd made about 60 or 70 pairs. And uh, Michael Sandler was writing a book called Barefoot Running. And he said, if you treated this little sandal making hobby like a business and had a website, I could put you in the book. Now, I've been an internet marketer since 1992, so I rush home. I pitch this incredible opportunity to my wife, who assures me it's a stupid idea that won't make any money and I shouldn't do it. It's a waste of time, a distraction from what we were trying to do now that we weren't going to be retired any longer. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. I won't, I won't do it. Uh, so then she went to bed and I built a website <laughs> and, uh, and it, it just took, and literally it just took off. I mean, yeah. we, we thought it would be a car payment at some point and it was, uh, within six weeks we realized, oh, this is our life from now on and which I couldn't be more grateful, uh, but it was definitely not planned. Mm -hmm. as, it, as it was growing, um, and, and growing much faster clearly than, than what you had anticipated, um, like how, how from the business side of things, like, like, was that was difficult struggle? Like, were there, were there, you know, a bunch of things that, that cropped up that you obviously at that oh, yeah. type of scale, like you're not probably prepared right away. So how did that kind of shake out? Yeah. Um, growth, uh, uh, high growth is always challenging. The biggest challenge, especially for an inventory based business, which footwear obviously is, is when you're growing 50, 80, hundred percent a year, you need to buy the inventory for the next year, not knowing what the real demand is going to be. And you can't, uh, if you don't have access to the cash personally or friends and family or big borrow steal, you won't get conventional financing because all the banks they look at your history and will lend based on what happened in the past mm. and they don't care what you're projecting for the future. And so up until December of 2020, when we took on a private equity partner in a minority position, my wife, who is my co-founder and was, was CFO, now she's president, we have hired a CFO, she spent most of her time just looking for money mm. and it's a real hassle. And with uh, the trade war and COVID, it became an even bigger hassle, which is partly why we uh, took on this private equity partner. And that's, that's challenge number one. The other one is simply that making shoes is really hard uh, in ways that no one can appreciate and can't imagine. And they have completely warped ideas about how the business works. But I can tell you, seven months in, we had some guys sitting at our dining room table uh, who had all been in the business for 35 years at that time saying, we believe this natural movement thing is the most important thing in footwear, and we believe in you guys, and we would start this business with you, but we've been in footwear so long that we're not stupid enough to start a shoe company. Mm. And Lane and I said, yeah, we're hyper-optimistic and naive. That's the way all entrepreneurs are when they're starting something, so cross your fingers. And, uh, and they told us things that we thought were insane. They said, you know, they were still in the consulting business, and they were still doing a lot of manufacturing and testing or working with clients overseas. They said, our FedEx bill is $5,000 a month. And we thought that is the craziest thing we'd ever heard. And now I would kill for a $5,000 <laughs> FedEx bill. Uh, what are, you kind of mentioned it there and then, and then passed, but I'm not, I'm gonna, not going to let you just skip over it that quickly. What are some uh -oh. of the, the struggles and, and difficulties of, of the shoe, like manufacturing the shoes? Because yeah, 
runners, there's a, there's a fair few that listen that are definitely shoe nerds. So I'd, I'd be, yeah, you sure they'd be well, interested? Well, the simplest thing is there's humans involved uh, in, in almost every step of the process, and there's no way around that, really. Uh, not with the way m- most shoes are made, and it's not going to change for quite a while for a lot of reasons. Um, the economy of scale is one part, but there's, you know, there's, there's humans involved. And the, the, there, there are so many, and well, another thing is that the, it's really weird to explain. So there's a great book called Poorly Made in China. And it's written by a guy who's an, uh, an agent. He helps people who are looking to manufacture in China find, find factories where they can manufacture. And it's really interesting reading the book for a number of reasons. But the biggest is you learn to see that other cultures can have a completely different way of viewing the world than you that's 100% logically consistent with internally, but completely contradictory and inconsistent with a different worldview. So, for example... In most parts of Asia, not just China, the, if you work with a factory, their job is to find ways to give you what you want, a good product at a good price, but then to find little ways of you know, carving out a couple of pennies here and there to make more profit for them by making some change to something that you didn't specify or that you're not going to notice. And so it's not uncommon for you to spec out a bunch of fabrics, a bunch of materials, manufacturing process, and the factory to sign off on that and then do something different. So every footwear company, from Nike down, Nike, Adi, Puma, you name it, every company has dealt with this. Even when they're running their own factories, there's going to be someone in that factory looking to advance his career by changing that material just a little bit. You don't notice it physically. You don't notice it with your eyes. You don't feel it, but it performs differently. So, so that's another component is that just getting things done uh, is difficult. Another thing is just the, the, and by the way, a very consistent worldview, that's their job is to give you what you want, but find ways of carving things out. And, and while here in America, you might think that that's reprehensible and not the way it's done. It's actually done here too. Uh, people do, I mean, it's done everywhere, but here you can kind of call people on it and they'll go, yeah, you got me there. They go, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. What are you, what are you arguing about? Like patent theft, the Chinese, you know, Americans go crazy. It's like the Chinese are stealing all our intellectual property. They're going, yeah, of course we are. We're acknowledging that what you created is really good. And now we're going to give it to more people. If instead of complaining, why aren't you trying to steal our shit? I mean, it's really, it's, you have to change the way you think about the world. So anyway, um, but for us, there's a couple added components. The first, or or fewer added components is really the issue. We're making more minimalist products. We have fewer layers. We don't have an outsole and then a midsole and then, you know, more layers and layers and layers where you can hide your mistakes. When we got our first outsoles made for our do-it-yourself sandals, they came back where the left and right weighed different amounts, noticeably different amounts. The larger ones were sometimes weighing less than the smaller ones, which makes no sense because the larger ones should have more material. And when we complained to the factory, uh, they kicked us out. They said, we have no interest in changing our procedures because when they were making outsoles, it just got glued onto something else and nobody would ever notice. So we're demanding different manufacturing at every step of the process, different way of um, ha- of the, the last that we use, which is the shape that you make the shoe around. Our last look very different than anything else people have seen. The way we're manufacturing requires different processes. And, uh, and then there's one other component, which is when people come to work in factories, they usually come to work for an- enough time to get money to go back, build a house, support their family. So every Chinese New Year, people go home, and then only about half the people come back. So there's a constant retraining process. So... Uh, and, and if people say, well, go out of China, it, it's worse everywhere else because in China, they've been doing it for 50 years, a little over 50 years. In other places, they're still learning how to do this stuff. And by the way, all the supply chain stuff, all the materials still come from China anyway. So it's, a, it's not what people think. People say, oh, if you wanted to, you can make stuff in America. It's like, no, you can't. There are a few companies making some products here. But by and large, you can't make most. Not, there's a reason 99% of athletic footwear is still made in China. It's because that's where the, the materials are coming from. That's where the knowledge is. That's where the equipment is. So anyway, that's a long answer to your question because it's really, it's surprisingly complicated to make something simple. That would, if I had opened with that line, that would have shut me up for a while. No, no, it was good. And, and, and you know, again, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably prevalent across the board. Simply Absolutely. that. Well, not, but, but just the, the idea that 
what we think should be simple. There's a lot of layers to it, no matter what it is, no matter yeah. it's, it's, oh, yeah, yeah. it's opening a restaurant, it's cooking dinner, it's, it's, you know, <sighs> writing a website code, like whatever, all it is, it, it, if you don't know anybody, you're like, well, that shouldn't be that, you're like, I can, it probably isn't well, that difficult, but then you get into it and there's so many layers that it's super there's, complicated. There's always, you know, when I said we were hyper-optimistic and naive, there's always a million things that you don't know you don't know, right. and the only way you find them is by jumping in. And look, the way our company's grown, there's now things that we're dealing with that I never knew existed or happened, and I can't even tell you what they are, because they have to do with people trying to rip off our customers by pretending to be us in different ways, which, I mean, I'm now spending tens of thousands of dollars a year just to protect our customers from scammers. Who the hell knew that was an actual business line item? So, and it wasn't until a year ago. Until you're big, big enough. enough yep. Now we're on the radar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, mentioned earlier, and, and I feel like I've talked about this a little bit, but I'd, I'd love to get your take on it. And, and certainly you're more uh, locked in on it probably than I am. But the idea that, that um, you know, bad form or poor form in highly cushioned shoes, you don't notice it because the highly cushioning of the shoes is, is doing its job. Um, kind of. It's not really. Here's the thing. So let's start with this thing that, again, I'm not going to try and talk people into taking off their shoes and going barefoot or even wearing zero shoes for whatever you do all day, every day. I will say, though, I'll give you a reason to wear our shoes, even if you don't run in them. Active recovery. I mean, simple enough. Or when, you know, you need a good pair of sandals and flip-flops are horrible for you. We make great sandals. So there's lots of reasons to wear our stuff casually. There's research that from Dr. Sarah Ridge showing that just walking in minimalist shoes builds intrinsic foot muscle strength as much as doing an actual exercise program. She didn't do the study with our shoes, but the lead of the study said our shoes should give the same benefits because it's the same basic idea. When is weaker better than stronger? Never. So if you want to keep strong, healthy feet, great thing to use our shoes just for casual wear. And if you think you, it, it doesn't apply to you, I can tell you a really interesting one. We have professional hockey players who say they're skating better because they're wearing our shoes off the ice, even though when they're in their skates, they can't actually move their feet. But somehow that strength is actually translating into their skating when their feet are all bound up. So um, so that's just a, a thing to keep in mind. Um, but, um, oh wait, crap, what was your question? <laughs> well, just, you know, how, how the quote unquote Four. normal shoes are problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the interesting thing. So this is research from Christine Pollard and a number of others where they assumed that cushioning was good and more cushioning was better. But the research shows that all cushioning is bad and more cushioning is worse, uh, in part because you end up being higher off the ground, which makes you tippier. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm hearing anecdotally more cases of wrist and um, clavicle fractures from people wearing big high shoes and falling off of them. Mm -hmm. And so just an FYI. But here's the interesting thing about cushioning. First of all, all cushioning sucks, literally. I'm talking about physics. All cushioning sucks energy out of you and slows you down. We know that what makes you faster is mass-specific force, putting the right force into the ground at the right angle. We don't know how to increase that, but we know how to decrease that. Spread the force over more surface area and slow it down. And all foam does that. When you see certain kinds of foam, the other thing with foam is it's basically tuned to a particular weight and frequency. So if you're not the right weight running at the right mm -hmm. speed, that foam won't work for you anyway. It could make it worse. It's like jumping on a trampoline. It's your legs providing the spring. It's working with the trampoline that makes that work. And if you look at tramp gymnasts, they'll look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, in a related note, Elliot Kuchoge, sub two hour marathoner, in an article that got no attention about a year and change ago, uh, was out there saying, it wasn't the shoes that made me run so fast, it was my legs. <laughs> so, And there's a whole argument about that as well. But here's the interesting thing about the physics of cushioning. In your feet, your sole of your feet, you have mechanoreceptors. They're sensitive to pressure. What the foam does is it spreads out the pressure, but it doesn't change the force. These are two different things. So what Christine Pollard's research showed is that while you don't feel the pressure, the force is going right up your joints, into your ankle, into your knee, into your hip, into your back. So what she was showing is that the force into the knee, the tibial loading forces, were exactly the same when you were wearing any kind of cushioned shoe. What Dr. Daniel Lieberman showed is if you want to get rid of the tibial loading forces, take off your shoes. Mm -hmm. Because then you start using your muscles, ligaments, and tendons to protect your joints as natural springs and shock absorbers. There's another thing that um, cushioned shoes do, or any, any shoe that has an elevated heel, 
it prevents you from using your Achilles fully. Your Achilles is a super strong spring. Even if you're landing midfoot un, under, relatively underneath your body, you're not getting that full stretch of the Achilles, which gives you that totally effortless rebound that can propel you upward and outward. And so that's another problem with the design of the, of the modern athletic shoe. And last but not least, thinking about, it's not related to cushioning, but most, uh, almost all modern athletic shoes, except for those from one other, uh, couple other companies, um, they have super pointy toe boxes. Mm-hmm. So think about doing push-ups. When you do a push-up, do you squeeze your fingers together or do you spread them apart? Spread them wide. Yeah, how come? I don't know the physics of it, but I'm sure there's some type of force displacement or something like that that's going on. Yeah, balance, strength, mm-hmm. you know, stability. Same thing with your feet. When you squeeze your toes together, you can't actually use, well, you get nothing out of your toes. And a big part of the locomotive uh, and gait process is using your big toe to engage your, tra- your longitudinal arch. And when you squeeze your toes together, you can't do that. I think um, Sarah Ridge, I don't know if this was published, showed that just by squeezing your big toe in towards your other toes, it cuts off circulation into the sole of your foot, which again, how can that possibly be good? Right. So uh, just to reiterate, I'm not going to try and talk people into doing what we're doing if you're happy with where you are, but if you've been getting injured repeatedly, or if you want to do something for active recovery, or you want to build strength when you're not, you know, in whatever you're running, um, that's a good reason for us to be here for you. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've um, said a few times that, that I think, and, and, and I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm missing the mark, but one of the reasons that I've, you know, knock on wood or whatever, but I've been, been pretty healthy the last, you know, six, seven, eight years in terms of the quote unquote common running injuries um, is that going back to what you said, not necessarily what I'm wearing, when I'm running, but, and maybe I, maybe my flip flops aren't the best thing, but I feel like I got pretty decent. I, I wear uh, rainbow sandals most of the time, which I think are a little bit better than, than whatever, regardless. Yeah. The, yeah. the point I'm trying to make is that being barefoot or at least in sandals, literally 365 days a year, um, yeah. I think makes a difference in my foot health. Totally does. Yeah. Totally does. Um, I had a fun conversation with uh, the former two-time world heavyweight champion, Len- uh, boxing champion, Lennox Lewis. And he said, what do your shoes do for support? I said, you grew up in Jamaica. He goes, yeah. I said, did you run around when you were a kid all the time? He goes, yeah, constantly. I said, were you wearing shoes? He goes, no. I said, how'd you feel at the end of the day? He goes, great. I said, what'd you do for support? He goes, nothing. I said, yeah, we do the same thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Your body and has actually, a way of, of supporting itself if you, you know, allow well, it to do so. Well, A, two things. One, there's research from Katrina Protopapas showing that if when she put uh, arch support in the shoes of healthy individuals, they lost up to 17% of the muscle mass in their foot in 12 weeks. Again, how could that be good for you? Mm-hmm. But here's the craziest thing. Um, I, I don't have one handy. Uh, uh, I want to say that everything you need to know about running form, you can learn in a book, and then I want to hold up a phone book. Uh, <laughs> anyone remembers what a phone book is? And the reason you can learn everything you need to know from running in a phone book is a phone book, especially like you know from New York or L.A. or something, it's uh, like three, four inches high. Uh, thick. And that's about how much bounce you should have when you're running. So if you stand on a phone book and then step off with one foot, uh, you'll land on the ball of your foot. Mm. And the reason you land on the ball of your foot is the arch is designed to be your first layer of protection and stability. And then that supports everything else all the way upstream. That's the way you're supposed to land when you run. You watch habitual barefoot runners, people who grew up without shoes, that's how they run. You put shoes on and they start overstriding, heel striking, and getting injured. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, if you're going to come off of a four-foot ledge and land with your foot underneath your center of mass, all in ball of your foot, and engage your muscles, ligaments, and tendons to absorb that shock, guess what? Try, you know, just like do that over and over and then right. you will find miraculous things happen. It's about the form, not the footwear is the fundamental idea. It's just that some footwear makes it easier to make those form adjustments and some makes it impossible. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, a, a, another question and we'll kind of start wrapping things up, Stephen, but something that I, I, I hear a lot of complaints about in, in running communities are I've got XYZ shoe and it's great for me. It's, it's perfect. I love it. And then next year the new model comes out and it's not what I want anymore. It, 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 yeah. it feels completely different. And yeah. I, I say that to set up the question that I noticed with, with on, on y'all's website, there's a couple models, but they seem like they've been around for a while. There's no real yeah. update, no, no version twos, no version threes, no version 4.5s, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I also noticed that you've got the, like a 5,000 mile guarantee on your sole, which is yeah. incredible because everybody else is like, you know, change your shoes every three to four or 500 miles at the most. Like otherwise, yeah. you, you know, they're not going to work. Um, so I guess, I guess my question is probably not a great one, but like, like why, why is that like what, like what makes what y'all do so dramatically different than quote unquote standard running shoe logic, knowledge, et cetera. 
yeah, again, keep in mind what we're doing is what people were doing. Like Irene Davis from Harvard says, uh, in the 60s, we were running in thin-soled running shoes and playing basketball in Chuck Taylors, and we weren't seeing the number of injuries, the kind of injuries, the severity of injuries that we're seeing since. So what problem were the big companies trying to solve, and why hasn't it worked? Because to this day, for the last 50 years, consistently 50% of runners, 80% of marathoners get injured every year. So there's not a whole lot for us to change because there's not a whole lot that we're doing. We've got a sole and then an upper that's attached to it, just the way humans have been making footwear for millennia. And so we don't have, to, we don't have some magic new technology that doesn't do anything anyway. Do you ever notice whenever a shoe company comes out with some magic new cushioning, they don't say, by the way, huge apologies for that crap we've been selling for the last five years. <laughs> it's always, here, it's amazing and it's wonderful. And like the boy who cried wolf, we run to the running shoe store and end up with the same experience. So uh, so there's just not a lot for us to change. We'll, what we'll do often if, some, like our Prio is our first running shoe. It's a great shoe. Um, but people are saying, I'd like something a little lighter weight. And so we made the HFS, which is more of a road runner rather than the Prio, which you could use for pretty much everything, running, walking, hiking, lifting, you name it. And then some people took it the other way and they said, that's great, but I'm doing CrossFit and parkour and obstacle course racing and Ninja Warrior stuff. I need something that can, and playing tennis, I need something that can handle lateral motion and the kind of crazy things I'm doing in those uh, other activities. So we made a shoe called the 360. Very similar idea, but just with some added little tweaks like rubber inlays on the upper to for rope climbing and a sole that's got a slightly different grip pattern or tread for more grip. So we're constantly just listening to customers to evolve uh, use cases. But once we have something that works for a use case, the changes that we're going to make are minor at best. Um, and we're not going to change the foam because there is none. We're not going to have to change the, the outsole material because it's really rugged and durable. And by the way, those companies that say change your shoes every three to 500 miles, the research show, that's, they say that because that's when the, the EVA midsole tends to wear out. They say the research shows that that stuff is turning into crap after about 150 miles. Wow. But if they said 150, you'd lose your mind. So they say three to 500 and uh, the research does not bear that out at all. And the new maximalist shoes, some of them literally say 100 miles, you got to replace them, hmm. which means they're having problems before that even. And by the way, really quick thing about that. Um, everyone's in this whole, in, got this whole thing going on about the carbon fiber layer in between layers of EVA. And they go, well, it's a spring, not a spring. Uh, it's a lever. It's not a lever. What people don't know, because y- you'll notice that the companies making these haven't said why they put the carbon fiber in. The reason why is if they just had all that foam without a layer of something in between, it's so unstable, it would just shear and fall apart almost instantly. <clears throat> so the carbon's just in there to act as stability. It doesn't do anything else. Wow. Uh, and, and you know, people have all these theories about it. It's like, I just wish more people knew physics, because if you knew mm-hmm. physics, you'd understand some of this marketing nonsense and not be swayed by it. Like when Adidas had their boost foam and they bounced a two-pound steel ball off the boost foam and went, hey, look how bouncy it is. It bounces like five times. The first bounce is almost 30% as high as where we dropped it from. Well, that's cool. If you bounce a two-pound steel ball off a steel plate with cement underneath it, the first bounce will hit the thing that you dropped it from and then will bounce 250 more times. So, you know, the misuse of physics has propelled the running shoe industry for the last 50 years. And uh, if people understood more, that would not have happened. Yeah, and y'all are on the the forefront of educating us, which is fantastic because we're on the 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 forefoot of it. Forefoot. Yeah, there we go. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Love it. Um, as as we're wrapping up, Steve, I I feel like I could keep going for days, but at some point, you know, we got to respect your time probably. And Lord knows I've got other things I need to get done as well. But, um, I I like to wrap these up with something I call a a philosophical question, um, which is kind of like the introductory questions. It's very open-ended, take it wherever you want to go with it. And that's what we'll, we'll wrap up for today. But, uh, just would be curious, you know, kind of like, when you, when you got asked the question, then you pose it to me about what would you do on the day that, that, you know, you could no longer run anymore and kind of not being able to wrap your head around the, the, the possibility of a day where you couldn't do some run anymore. Uh, I'd be curious to know why is, why is running so important to you that you can't imagine a situation where running is no longer an option for you? It's the perfect combination of things that my body that I enjoy doing that my body can do and that fits in with my um, goals as an athletic person. So I, I wish I could still do gymnastics, but my spine's out of whack and my shoulder's out of whack. And uh, you know, from doing gymnastics, ironically, I've done a number of things. I was, I was a competitive jump roper, um, super, super fun, but didn't really fit in with you know what I was looking for competitively. So running, sprinting in particular, obviously, just gives me that the combination of 
having uh, goals to reach out for, reasons to push myself harder and track what I'm doing and experiment to see what I can do with a changing body, the fun of competition, camaraderie. Um, my training partner, we've been together for, oh gosh, um, 12 years, no, 14 years. And so part of it is just social, which is super enjoyable. Again, hanging out with other crazy people is awesome. Uh, so it's, it's just the, the perfect combination of all of those things. Uh, and I, if I could find a different one, I'd do it, but I can't even imagine it. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. And, um, as, as per usual, uh, just kind of nodding along. I mean, you saw me cause we're on the video, but kind of just love, loved everything you had to say. Uh, but y'all, if you want to ch- check out more about, uh, kind of Steven's story and, and the, the zero shoes story, uh, zero shoes.com is the website on social media. Again, any, anywhere you are, just look for at zero shoes. Again, that's X E R O S H O E S. Uh, disruns.com slash 1002 is the link to get back to the show notes for today. Uh, I'll have everything linked up and, and uh, referenced and all that kind of good stuff as per usual. So, uh, Stephen, thank you for, for making the time today. Thanks for, for what you're doing. Um, I, I, I am definitely uh, uh, very much intrigued. I've been, I've been intrigued for a year and, and, and thinking about grabbing a pair of shoes and just for one reason or another haven't, but uh, it's going to be on my, my list ASAP to get some shoes, try them out. Uh, looking forward to, to feeling the the what, what the zero shoes are all about and taking them for some spins and and talking about them for a good five thousand miles because they'll last at least that long which is fantastic <laughs> well we like to say i look forward to seeing what happens when you learn to live life feet first all right y'all thank you so much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of the show hope you enjoyed the little conversation today between steven and myself and as per usual I'd be curious to know what stood out to you from today's episode what was your takeaway from our little chit chat today uh, for me, it just it, it just kind of comes down to foot health and just the role that it can play for us, not only as runners, although maybe specifically or especially for us as runners, but just in, in general everyday life. And, you know, regardless of what kind of shoes you're wearing or what kind of shoes you're not wearing or whatever the case might be, um, foot health is one of those things and foot strength specifically, strength and mobility are things that I think it's easy to overlook. I think they're things that I take for granted and, and theoretically I should know better. Um, and, and when Steven mentioned the idea that NHL hockey players who NHL hockey players wear, wear skates, their, their skates are small. Like they're always smaller than your, your normal foot size. Like, like you want your foot jammed in there tight. Um, I don't know why, but I know when I was playing hockey, that was how we did it. And anybody who plays hockey knows that that's how you do it. And so the idea that they're noticing a difference in their skating and their, their, how they're able to control them, themselves on their, on their edges, on the ice after wearing zero shoes and, and the effect that that has on strengthening their feet and whatnot, um, is just, is just a little bit, I don't want to say mind blowing, but it's a little bit like, holy cow. Like I, I know that having stronger feet is important and the st- stability and support and, and what that can do for your foot health and, and your running health as well. Um, but I never would have thought that you could see that play out in, in a NHL hockey player type of, of situation. And I guess that's why it stood out to me. That was why my, it was my takeaway is just, again, like I, I, I don't do it enough to talk about and stress foot health, foot strengthening, foot mobility, all those types of things that as, again, as runners, but also as humans, kind of important, kind of important. So, you know, my takeaway for today is, is the reminder to do, you know, whatever I'm doing already in terms of, you know, walking around in my, in my flip flops, which Steven says maybe isn't the best thing, um, but again, I like to think it's better than having them trapped in, in big, big fancy shoes all day, but you know, whatever to each their own. Um, but, but I can do more, I guess is the takeaway is, is, is what I'm trying to get to is, you know, yes, being barefoot, being in, in loosely supportive shoes, whatever, like that, that's great. But what else can I do? Can I do some more toe yoga? Can I do some more, you know, rolling on the golf ball or doing some of those types of things to just nothing crazy but just to loosen up the foot musculature, make the bones and joints move a little bit independent of each other, make sure the blood flows happening. And, and you know, that, that, because the blood flow, obviously that's an important piece of, of tissue health, any type of tissue. So, you know, just doing those types of things and, and just taking care of my feet. You know, it's, it's something that again, easy to overlook until you have a problem. And then you, you, you realize the importance of your feet and, and how sensitive they are and things like that. Uh, but maybe, you know, this is another one of those instances where proactivity beats reactivity every single time, 
twice on Sundays, and yet it's easy to overlook. So that's my takeaway today. The, the reminder to, to keep taking care of my feet, keep making sure that, that foot health is a priority, and trusting that maybe, just maybe, there's a, there's a correlation or there's a relationship or there's some type of downstream impact of my feet being healthy and strong, the rest of my body being healthy and strong. So I never have to fully answer that question that Stephen posed to me uh, about what would you do if you couldn't run anymore? Because, yeah, I don't want to think about it. But maybe being proactive can help me to never have to really confront that question head on. So that was my takeaway. What about you? What stood out to you for today's episode? Let me know at DizRuns on Twitter, at DizRuns on Instagram. You can also send an email to DizRuns at gmail.com. And of course, you can also head over to the show notes for today, DizRuns.com slash 1002. DizRuns.com slash 1002. Got photos, got links, got the whole nine as per usual. Got that comment section down at the bottom. You can leave your thoughts and feedbacks, comments and takeaways there as well start a little conversation i'll continue it and we can go back and forth as much as you want obviously we can do that via email or via social media as well uh so really whatever works best for you works best for me with that we'll go ahead and wrap this one up once again disruns.com slash coaching is the link to kind of the general information page about my coaching and my some of my philosophies why you don't need a coach but why you might want one um why you might find it helpful useful uh, all that type of stuff and it, hopefully answer some of your questions and if you have any other questions let me know uh, but once again disruns.com slash coaching is the link if that's something you might want to look forward to let's start talking and maybe make something happen and with that we'll go ahead and wrap this one up y'all thank you for listening thanks for the time thanks for the attention thanks for taking steven and i with you today hope you enjoyed this one if you did hit that share button tell a friend and uh, help spread the word help keep this thing going and growing into the new year and until next time y'all be well take good care thanks again for listening and uh, we'll talk soon right see you guys mm-hmm.